Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Hey, podcast listeners. Well, we often talk about life being a journey. And I think you're going to find in the recording today, in the podcast today with Ryan Freilich, how much life can be a journey. I really have been after Ryan to be on the podcast because he is a career changer as well. And he talks about his journey to becoming a financial planner and some of the things that he's most passionate about. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast and uh, I hope you are enjoying the first day of spring as well. Uh, We look forward to seeing you all very soon as we make our return back to upstate New York. Sit on back and sip your favorite glass of wine. You are listening to Wine and Dime, a podcast that combines two passions, wine and personal finance. Hosted by Amy Irvine, certified financial planner and owner of Irvine Wealth Planning Strategies, located in Corning, New York. And now here's your host, Amy Irvine. Welcome to this edition of Wine and Dime with Amy Irvine. Today's guest is Ryan Freilich. Ryan and I know each other from the infamous by now XY Planning Network. And I've asked Ryan to be on the show because he specializes in working with a very underserved and highly, um, I want to say, maybe attacked. Is that too strong of a word? Um, Segment of our market. (laughs) Um, Ryan, welcome to the show. I broke in there. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to, to be a part of this, and I appreciate you asking me. Is, is my is my word too long or too harsh? Do you think the word attack? Um, I, I think it varies from place to place, but I think there there are certainly many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of teachers that attack is a perfectly fair word. To use. Yeah, it's. I, I just did a in, in podcast with somebody else a couple of days ago, and we were talking about you know the industry of financial services versus the profession of financial planning. Mm. And um, I said, you know, I started out in a trust department. Um, many, many years ago. So I was sort of born into the fiduciary environment. And when I went into the broker dealer world, I I remember thinking, you people are nuts. Like, what is the matter with you? (laughs) I I never even knew the sales stuff existed. I used to always thought that, you know, that's how you behaved. And not that, you know, not that I'll people that are in the broker dealer world are, are bad or anything like that. They're not. In fact, the majority are, are really great people and they're very ethical people, but there were all these sales goals that I just wasn't used to. And um, probably about 2000 and 
five, I did a very short stint with MetLife Resources, mm-hmm. which focuses on working with teachers. So um, when I was thinking about my career and thinking about that conversation, I thought Ryan would be the perfect person to have on the show to talk about that because that's sort of your forte and specialty, um, you know, who, who you work with uh, in the in the in the financial planning profession. So, um, so I know, uh, we did a little bit of chatting before we actually started recording and I know that we open, you know, each episode with a reminder that in my opinion, our lives are very similar to a vineyard. We all start with a root someplace and, um, and we develop our, our vines and our talents and our experiences all develop based on what we're exposed to and the knowledge that we have. So, um, you can probably take about any situation and have me sort of convert it to a vineyard in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. But, but I know you're not a huge wine fan. Instead, you like um, some whiskey and beer. So tell us what your favorite beer and or whiskey is. So so if we're talking about whiskey, you know, for a, for a, a regular day, I think Buffalo Trace is my is my favorite at the at the price point. A very financial planner response. <laughs> uh, but then kind of any, any, any bourbons, um, particularly Kentucky bourbons, I had a roommate, um, when I was just out of college, who was a very, very, uh, strong, prideful Kentucky native. And he was upset when I brought Jack Daniels into our house and poured out the entire bottle and then went and bought me a bottle of Maker's Mark. And, uh, I've sort of never looked back to, to Kentucky bourbons <laughs> from Kentucky bourbons. So that's pretty much if it's a bourbon made in Kentucky, I'm happy with it. Um, yeah, so that's that's where I go from. You know, I, I could have attempted to uh, talk about wines, but I would have shown my ignorance quite quickly if we had done that. So I just probably better to not even pretend. It's okay. We're, we all have our own talents <laughs> or tastes, I should say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so beer wise, though, um, beer, beer. I am more again depends depends on the on the time and place. Um, where it's Mardi Gras season here in New Orleans, so definitely things on the lighter side, you know, ales and things that you can you know hang out outside and drink for a few hours. Um, but then usually I'll like like an IPA as well, but mm. generally not not this time of year. I'm not a big fan. You know, I've never been able to adopt a. a t- I guess a taste for IPAs. I've never, there's an, I, I try, I try because there's some of my husband is a big fan of that, but I've never been able to actually um, acquire that taste. And instead I tend to go towards the really dark, like porters and stouts and, you know, yeah. they're, they're the heavier, the better for me. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, even even on a ninety degree day, I'm going to reach for something like that over a like an ale or something. It's just it's that's my wife's preference as well. Hers is, is similar. Um, although I do like the line that um, IPAs are basically just pumpkin spice lattes for white guys with beards. <laughs> uh, I just know there's some pretty strong IPAs out there. <laughs> so, yeah, just the, the, the most cliche thing I could be, I suppose. <laughs> so, that's funny. I'll have to share that one with my husband because he's such a big fan. But it's, not, it's, it's just, he says it's great fruity, fruity. All I can smell is like pine. That's what I think of as yeah. a pine tree. So, I guess eh, yeah, everybody has their own taste. So, exactly. so let's dig into... Um, the the core of your sort of 
um, progression into the specialty that you have and the niche that you have within, within our profession, because, um, I, I probably should have used instead of the word attack, I should have probably used the word predatory earlier. Um, yeah. and, and I, and I still know that's a very strong word, but you and I have had many conversations and have shared in the frustration sometimes, uh, in that particular arena, what has led you, I guess, you know, what's Ryan's path to where he is today and why you chose to, to work with many teachers and professors in our, in our world? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I come at this from a career changer sort of transition. So my background, uh, the short version is I was a teacher for five years, uh, actually in three different states. And then I became the HR director of a growing charter school organization and as the HR director also had, you know, uh, oversight over our retirement plan or 403B plan. And so both as a participant in 403B plans and then as an administrator, you know, plan sponsor of a 403B plan, I sort of saw it from that side mm-hmm. rather than the industry side. And it was just this slow uh, education process for myself and realizing like the, the incentives here are all wrong. Right. And so the, you mentioned earlier, they're not bad people. And I think, you know, if you'd had this conversation with me two years ago, I'd be pretty fired up and use all kinds of choice words to describe people who've had up. And I've come to the place where like that, that does exist, but actually mostly it's people who don't even necessarily know what they're selling, mm-hmm. don't understand what other options exist and are highly incentivized. Right. And so if you're, if you know, if your paycheck relies on you seeing something a certain way, it's very hard to see past that. Um, and I feel really lucky that I didn't go through that unlearning process that so many planners sort of slowly have to go through as they understand like, oh, I've been selling this thing because it pays me five times as much. And it's actually extremely detrimental or predi- you know, detrimental to someone's outcomes or predatory. And it's not actually in their best interest um, or even really suitable for them um, to, to get into the technical jargon. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I... I collected several 403B accounts. And then I was the administrator of one and I was, I was the administrator trying to understand it with all the information I had on that side and realizing I still, A, it was hard to understand all the fees and charges and B, you know, I walked into a, a, an environment where I was looking at the plan and going, well, we have a 403B where every person is basically opted into one of two options, both of which are annuity options. So, you know, basically a contract and paying about one, one of them being a fixed income option at 2%. Now run a quick report from our HR database, average age of an employee in our organization at the time, 29. It's impossible to justify putting average age employee 29 years old into a product that will guarantee them 2% per year. Like unless you're expecting every person to save half their income, that's not an appropriate way to get to retirement. You know, inflation's more than 2% per year. So um, but with the incentives that they had, you know, that was what they were able to push and, um, taking advantage of post Katrina confusion here in New Orleans, uh, you know, mm-hmm. went around and got all sorts of schools to sign on when they had a, you know, a to-do list a mile long, like get buildings and find students and mm-hmm. find teachers. Um, obviously those things are a much higher priority. And, and so, you know, someone walks in the door and says, I can take care of your retirement plan and someone signs up. And then before you know it, you've got hundreds of people signed up for something that's really only helping the people who sold it to, you know, live their quote, great life, but it's not helping any of the people in that, in, you know, enrolled in the plan. 
Well, let's back up to you said, you know, you came into this as a career changer and you worked for a charter school. And prior to that, you were in education, you were teaching education. What was your field of, of um, study and what did you actually teach? Yeah. Um, my undergrad did not have to do with that. My undergraduate was in um, psychology and public relations, double major. Uh, I joined Teach for America, so I taught in a small town in Mississippi, um, and, which was a great experience. It's, it's wild to think all the kids I taught are you know, post-high school age at this point. Um, and I taught, I taught a few different subjects over the years, but mostly I taught fifth grade math. Um, so I would say I was, a, I was a math teacher for middle schoolers. I love middle schoolers. I know a lot of people think, oh, my God, get me away from those, those <laughs> uh, creatures. Uh, I was trying to find the right word, <laughs> probably the right one. Um, but I love that age. And so I came in it, you know, from, from that perspective of being, having been a math teacher. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I love being in the classroom. I think uh, if I could paint my dream job, if I could teach one hour per day, kid, <laughs> I would love that. And I realize that's, you know, probably teachers listening may not love that comment. Um, cause that's not realistic in any way, shape or form, but it would be the perfect sort of setup to have that exposure to kids and all the funny things they say and the way they mm-hmm. challenge you and test you. Um, but, but not be doing it five, six, seven periods a day. Mm-hmm. So the love for math, I mean, that kind of brought it to, um, I mean, there, there's not that we do, um, a lot of what we do is more on the personnel side, I guess, or personality side. Uh, but but it's certainly to be able to show the math and to be able to show the projections. That's it's helpful to to really enjoy math when you're working in our profession. Um, you saw the numbers. You saw what was going on. You saw you you felt passionate enough for you to make this change. What was like? You know, you generally aren't sitting around thinking, you know, I really like math, um, but I think I'll be a financial planner today. <laughs> you know? What was that? What was that kind of thought process when you made the yeah. decision to pursue it? Yeah, um, you know, so so the process makes a lot more sense when I back up and kind of give the greater context, which is essentially, you know, I taught for five years. I was the HR director of this uh, charter school organization for around five years. Um, and my wife and I thought we were leaving New Orleans. And so I decided that I was going to leave my job. Um, and the idea there being like, I didn't want to be going through the spring months recruiting while I was also one foot out the door myself. Mm-hmm. It just felt weird to be like, hey, come work here. It's great. Also, I'm leaving. Like that, that seemed sort of like misaligned to me. Mm-hmm. I turned in my notice months at a time, left basically January 1st, 2016. Um, and my plan was to do some various consulting work. And then once we figured out where she was going to grad school, you know, I'd land on my feet and you know, look for another job similar to my previous one, you know, sort of climb that, that path. Uh, at the same time, we had a financial planner ourselves, uh, Jude Boudreau of now the planning center. Um, Good guy. And in talking, he's wonderful and largely responsible for, for my being here. Um, you know, he said during some of our conversations, as we were kind of talking about life planning, how to budget through the transition and the differences now why I was becoming a contractor instead of an employee and, all, all of the things that were changing. Um, but he also said, you know, you seem really interested in this financial stuff. You know, if you want to take a course, I think you might be interested. Um, and so while I had that sort of open space and wasn't working full time when we were thinking about what was happening, I was like, ah, yeah, I kind of put it off. And then through a series of events, we decided not to leave. And my wife decided not to go to grad school and uh, got another job here. And so I looked up and realized like, oh, I've 
taken this flying leap into self-employment, um, doing okay, finding various projects for other schools, but, but what do I want to be doing five years from now? And is it HR in education or is it HR generally? And I realized the answer was no. I liked what I was doing, but I liked who I was doing it for more than what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I kind of took Jude up on the, on the you know, doing, doing the coursework. And once I had taken the first financial planning course, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and I knew right away because I had come from working with Jude and having that experience, right? So I didn't have the experience of, you know, being upsold by a, by a personal planner, I should say, um, different on the, on the retirement side. Um, you know, I, all I knew was fee only. All I knew was I pay someone a fee every month and they give me advice and time. That's, that's, as I understood it, what financial planning was. And so I knew that my options were to look at fee-only financial planning firms and we were committed to staying in New Orleans. Well, that was a list that you could count on one hand at the time. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, talk to, talk to Jude and some others about whether there's opportunities to work together and just nothing quite fit because I didn't have enough experience for the jobs they had open. Um, and so I decided, you know, I'm going to keep doing the classes. And then we found out my wife was... We were, pregnant with, uh, with our son, Elijah. Um, and while some people might say, okay, so you're deciding to go into self-employment in a brand new career while you're expecting your first baby. That sounds crazy. Um, the beauty of it was, you know, we, we had been savers and with Jude's help, we had been savers and also had, had bought and sold a house. And so we had some equity there. Um, so we had the space to do it and it allowed me to have a lot more freedom to be around him in the first few months of life. And, you know, I, stayed home with him full time for a couple months after she went back to work. Um, so we didn't actually put him in daycare until about five, five and a half months. Um, because I had all this free time because when you start a business, you also have a lot of open time that first year. <laughs> you don't have 40 hours a week or, or even 30 hours a week when you have, you know, two or three clients. Um, so it's sort of aligned for us that we could use the spending that we had so I could be more present while I was building up my business. Um, so kind of just the stars aligned and it worked and, you know, here we are and he's about to turn two and, uh, kind of crazy to think back on a really, really crazy time, but it worked out well. We may have lost people and all that. I'm sorry. No, no. I think I, the, um, what I love about that is the fact that, um, when we, I often ask people what their happiness factor is, you know, and sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I only have three more years left or I only have nine more years left or something like that until they retire. And I always think how sad that is that, you know, somebody's sort of wishing their, their life to, to go by, um, you know, what we can pack in a three year or nine year period is, is pretty extraordinary. So the fact that you were prepared, um, you know, the, the fact that you were prepared to be able to do this um, change that you wanted to make, I think, speaks to what we do as financial planners, because I've met a few teachers that and I'm sure you have, too, that mm-hmm. that thought they were going to love being teachers and then they're in it and they're like, oh, my gosh. It's, it's a very, very challenging career to be in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, God bless them. Nurses and teachers are like the two careers that I just, Hey, you know, you guys are miracle workers in my opinion. And I don't have the patience or the ability to, to um, work in either of those um, professions. And, and yet, you know, we, they often get burnt out and they don't know what their choices are once they get into that field. So, um, you know, I love your story about being prepared for, 
starting a business and having a baby and <laughs> not moving or, you know, all of that yeah. sort of stuff. So it's, it's incredible. And it speaks to Jude's ability to coach you through a pretty stressful time. Yeah. And I think what's, you know, I reach out to a financial planner because it's like, I have these money questions and I don't know what to do with all these old retirement accounts. Um, you know, which was part of the problems I'd accumulated these various retirement accounts, which weren't appropriate and didn't know what to do with them. Suddenly I had four accounts in four in, you know, different <laughs> dates. Um, and I, you know, you know, when I reached out, I thought that's, you know, I thought there's this math, this is like project management. And it, like, I think what I appreciate so much about um, his approach and what I've tried to emulate in my own work with clients is that we don't, just talk about the numbers, right? Like feelings are important too, and your happiness is important too. And in fact, it's more important. And so how do we use the money to help you build a life that you desire? Right. So the first meeting that I have with clients is largely based off of what Jude helped us go through, but it's really just talking about like, what do you wish you spent more time doing? What are the things you want to accomplish? You know, a question I've started asking is, you know, what do you never regret spending money? Mm -hmm. Um, and what I realized in the process is just, you know, freedom is really important to me. Um, and freedom to I take a trip when I want to, to be able to purchase something that maybe is costs a little more than my usual budget, but because it's, you know, because I have some savings and I don't splurge often, I can do it. Um, freedom to be able to change careers if you need to. Freedom to be able to stay home basically for two mm -hmm. months. I mean, I worked some during that time, but I was really working kind of nights and weekends and during nap time. Anyone who's been home with you, <laughs> you don't really get to work. Um, and so that that was just an utmost sort of value for me. And though the, you know, money is freedom, right? Like money, money isn't value in and of itself. Money is valuable because it enabled me to have the time and space to do all these other things. Um, and so, you know, having gone through that approach with someone myself, it sort of just made sense to me that that would be how I'd structure my own process. And of course, we do get into talking about investments and what to do with old retirement accounts and what an appropriate investment should look like and cash flow and all those things. But it needs to be rooted in the larger vision of what do you want to spend your time doing? Because, you know, I... I I agree with what you said earlier. You know, I think if, you, if you're burning out on a job, it can be really hard to make that switch if you don't have cash flows and, and, and reserves. Um, you know, I sat down on a flight not too, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was coming back from Florida, actually. I was not too far from, from the other side of the state. Hmm. Um, and was with my son, and I sat next to a woman, and my son was being a toddler on a flight. God bless her. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, but she was a teacher with nine years of experience outside of Baton Rouge. And she told me she was thinking this was going to be her last year. And we were talking and I never, I'm not a hard salesperson, so I didn't bring up money or anything, but she actually brought up, you know, I just don't know how to do it with, cause like, I don't know how I'll find my next job before I like run out of money. And I, I, my credit cards are already all wiped and maxed out. And I was like, mm. thinking to myself, you know, Hey, I don't think I can be of help to this person. Just the things she was sharing. It didn't really feel like a mindset fit for me, mm -hmm. but also like you are, telling a perfect stranger on a plane how stressed out you are and how much you want to make a switch, but you're mm -hmm. completely stuck. Mm -hmm. um, now, the reality is I understand that in some parts of the country, like teachers are so low paid. I, I don't have financial advice to give you, right? Because I just think you need to make more money. And I, I, that's not particularly helpful. But I know roughly what she was making relative to the cost of living. And of course, I don't know her whole financial picture, but like you can save on what she makes where mm -hmm. she lives. Of course, again, I don't know her whole financial picture, so I'm not trying to judge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
but like there wasn't, there wasn't the, the habits built in order to be able to make the change mm. that she wanted to make. And now it was much harder. And so she was kind of talking about going back mm. for another year. You already know you're unhappy. I don't want to see someone be unhappy for years and years, but she just felt very, very stuck. And that's something, it was a good reminder for me of like how lucky I am to be able to sort of make transitions. Um, and, and, you know, finances enable that, right? Like you can't, you know, life is expensive and you're not going to be able to have that freedom without a way to, you know, make sure not have the money stress outweigh the benefit of the freedom. So speaking of, um, the lessons you, you brought that up. I, mm-hmm. I always like to ask people, um, you know, what, when did the lesson, cause you reached out to Jude and Jude was your financial planner, but mm-hmm. what made you reach out to Jude? Were you included in money conversations as a kid? Was there something that triggered you to, um, you know, to make those, some of the preliminary financial decisions prior to even reaching out to Jude? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, my, my own relationship with money is I think when I'm still working on a lot, I don't think it was particularly healthy from, from growing up. Um, I remember money as being sort of a volatile subject. I think that's pretty common as I've been finding, um, you know, and it's, you know, I didn't grow up, uh, yeah, I didn't grow up with it being something that was talked about positively. It was sort of either a non-subject or a subject because of what we couldn't do. Hmm. Um, and we didn't grow up low income, you know, I didn't really grow up low income or anything like but, but that's just how it was framed. That's how my memories are. Um, and so, you know, by the time, you know, I, I had some basics that I had built in my twenties, um, you know, just, you know, not, not using credit card debt, right. And having a couple mm-hmm. thousand dollars in savings at all times, just like really basic stuff. Um, but then as my salary started rising, it didn't rise, you know, huge, but the difference between being a teacher and an administrator is, you know, maybe to $15,000. And that difference I was able to save um, because I didn't really change the lifestyle. So I think that was one thing is just like not um, you realizing that spending more money almost never makes you happier in the long run. It's a very temporary fleeting feeling. Mm -hmm. I got very lucky in the sense that I was able to, you know, basically save those raises and something I was going like, what do I do with this extra money? Right? Like I, okay, I've built up more of an emergency fund and I, I'm still saving my 10% for retirement, which I thought was enough at the time. It's not. Um, you know, what do I do now? And, you know, I talked to some friends and three different people that I worked with all recommended working with Jude. And there were three mm-hmm. very different people. There were like very different styles and life places and all this. So I was like, okay, these three people all say he's something worth working with. And, you know, to his credit, he said, you know, yeah, let's meet. And here I am, a 27, 28 year old making, I think $65,000 a year. And he was like, yep, I'll take your meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't the norm in this industry, right? right Most right. people say, nope, you, you know, you don't have enough assets or if it's not that it's even, you can't pay me enough every month to make this worth it. And he had sort of a starter package that worked for people like me. And I never felt as though I was like a lower tier client and knowing what I know now, you know, I know he had many clients paying, three, four, five times as much per year as what I was paying. Um, but I never felt that. But, you know, Ed, this is the thing that gets me going about the difference between our profession and this financial services industry is that we all start somewhere. And, the you know, the, the mistakes are made in the early years. And then, you know, it takes us 
so much energy and effort and time to habits unwinding, right? Recover. Yeah. Unlearning of habits. Yeah. And so, yeah, interesting. We started with the, the, you know, financial lessons. I think just understanding, I, I don't know if this comes from my psychology background or just reading or what it is, just like the idea of, you know, we don't, once your basic needs are met, more money almost never leads to more happiness unless it's spent in very specific ways. Um, and that was really, really good advice. I think, you know, if we were to talk about like bad lessons, I definitely remember hearing like, oh, you can always earn more money. It's just money. And yes, it's just money. I mean, I guess I agree with that to some sense, but like, it's not just money. If you're in credit card debt and you can't choose to make a, mm-hmm. a, a decision you would like to do because it means more stress, right? Like it's not, uh, you know, for better or worse, it's going to impact every one of our lives every single day. And so given that, I think taking steps to use it in ways that can support not just your, you know, today's self, but also your next week and next year and five years from now self is really important. And so I just think back on hearing, like you can always earn more money or it's just money. And I think like that's really, it's really like bad in, in internal monologue to have running. Um, do, do you, do you and your wife talk about how you're going to incorporate that into your family now? Like when I know your son's only two, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, Although I do think that they see more than we think they do. Um, what, what sort of things will you incorporate into that, um, into your household to make sure that there, those lessons aren't learned and then have to be unlearned? Definitely. Um, I think it's funny. I, I am the sort of person who, you know, we're expecting a baby and people read parenting books. I was reading Ron Lieber's The Opposite of Spoiled. Uh, when we were expecting him, uh, which for those of you who have kids or are expecting kids, read it. It's excellent. It's all about how to like, how you shouldn't say we can't afford that when in reality you can. So you actually need to talk about choices. And I think that's one of the things I, I think is really important is talking to him about choices. It's not that we can't afford this candy bar, this toy or whatever. Cause let's be real. Like most of the things he asks for, we could, we could pay for, we're in a position of, you know, you know, he's not asking for yachts and BMWs. He's asking for five and $10 objects. We could pay for them. But I think talking about like, is that really important? Is that what we want to spend on? Um, what does that mean? What, you know, what can't we do if we choose to buy that? Okay. You bought this. Now you can't buy that. Well, we don't have enough. I think that will be particularly interesting now in that money is so digital, right? Like mm-hmm. so few of us carry mm-hmm. cash. I, I really carry cash. I think, money is a difficult concept for kids to grasp onto anyways, because you're basically saying this piece of paper is worth more than that piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to to kind of conceptualize. And now we're just saying, you know, these numbers on a screen or this card in my pocket or this app on my phone. Um, So I think a just starting early and talking a lot about choices. I do plan to use, you know, coins and dollars. And we do talk about that of like, how do we um, actually make sure we are using physical money so that we can then say, okay, they're, there are ways to turn this physical money into you know, another object mm-hmm. uh, and trade it for that. Um, but we really, to be honest, have not talked in depth about that yet. And I think you're right that it's sneaking up on us and we probably, you know, kids, kids have a great way of um, always being ahead of what you think. <laughs> and so, you know, he's probably going to be asking those questions a lot sooner than I'm thinking in my head. That's still, you know, five years away, but it's, it's probably more like, <laughs> Um, my nephews are out for, for people that have uh, listened to this successively. They've heard a little bit about this, but my nephews were down visiting me for about six days, a couple of months ago. And 
well, but, yeah, a couple months ago by the time this was released. And um, the point that you made about choosing how your money was spent. So my mom gave them um, each some money to come down spending money, you know, for them to be able to utilize in whatever manner they wanted. And when I, um, when they wanted, when they asked for something outside of what we had already planned on sort of um, doing with them and for them while they were down here, I would ask the question, is that how you really want to spend your money? And they, they sometimes said "Mm, no and decided not to purchase whatever it was that they had in their hand or said they wanted or whatever. So by the time they left, they had only spent about half the money that she sent down with them. (laughs) So, I mean, I think to your point about, you know, if we pause for a moment sometimes and say, is that really how we want to spend our money? Um, the well, answer I mean, sometimes is yes, because they did spend half of it. Right. <laughs> but the, the answer sometimes is no, and they didn't spend the other half. So, right. And just that teeny tiny bit of friction makes such a big difference. And think about how little friction there is now between us and spending, right? You can stick your thumb down on your phone and spend money. We all see you know, headlines all the time about like young kids who have spent thousands of dollars on apps online without their parents knowing, you know, mm-hmm. I ordered groceries yesterday and spent $120 online, did prime now and had groceries at my door two hours later. <laughs> so it's just so little friction. And so I think, you know, thinking through how do you just ask that question? Like, like you said, on a regular basis, say like, is this really, will, you know, are you sure that's something you want? Or even asking it more neutrally. I just said, are you sure? Which is a very negative framing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way you worded it was better. And I think the concept that, that comes from um, the opposite of spoiled that I really like mm-hmm. is kids, you know, if you get an allowance or an earnings of any kind, you need to put it in three buckets and they're the same three buckets adults use. There's spend now, mm-hmm. save to spend later and give away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can do that even with a 2 or $3 allowance and help a kid understand that and they can choose what to give it away to. Do they want to give it away to a person we drive by on the street who's asking for help. Um, you know, and I know different people have different opinions on the best way to help people who, um, you know, who are struggling. Um, but that's, I think something that, you know, a young kid can choose to give away mm-hmm. to as long as they're told it's an okay thing to do with money to give it away. And you have to kind of build that as a habit and then also, you know, spend it now and, and, and spend later. Um, so I really like those three buckets is a very, very simple way of teaching young kids. But in reality, those are the same things we all do right now, right? You know, my my revenue comes in for my firm and it hits my bank account and I have a choice of what do I what do I want to spend this month? What do I want to save for, you know, next month or next year or 30 years from now? Mm-hmm. And what do I want to give away, whether that's to charities? or to, you know, friends that are doing interesting things that they need funding for, teachers I know who are running school projects. You know, I had a lot of family and friends sponsor a trip of uh, 18 middle schoolers to go from Mississippi to Washington, D.C. Wow. Right? And that, you know, it wasn't a charitable donation. None of them got a, you know, no one got a deduction for it or anything like that. But a lot of people gave it away. So I think giveaway, you know, sometimes that bucket gets called charity, but I, I like to call it giveaway. I um, am doing a class in about two weeks from the day we are recording, but I think it might be a few weeks after it's actually released, but it's actually um, in our small little 
community here in Parish, Florida, um, I asked some of our townhome owners uh, that, you know, I'm friends with and stuff like that. Hey, do you think that's, you'd want your kids to do a fun little project around um, getting to know money and money concepts? And one of the things that I'm actually going to have them do is uh, I, ha- I bought the little mason jars, you know, not anything yep. here, but just a little, tiny little. And I'm going to have them um, do some like decoration on those for the spend, save and donate. because it's exactly what you're saying. It's getting them familiar with those different concepts and, uh, and making sure that they're very educated about that. So that they understand and asking them different things like, is that, you know, throwing some scenarios out there, would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And what does it mean to have a debit card and a credit card and cash and how do they all work together? It's only a 45 minute workshop because that's Mm -hmm. about as much time as you can ever request a child to sit and participate, Mm -hmm. even if they are active. But I thought, you know, that's a great way to sort of, it's not mom and dad saying anything, but you know, mom and dad can go, but it's not them saying anything. Uh, I found in my experience that if, you know, good old aunt Amy says something, then, you know, whether it's the proverbial aunt Amy or the actual aunt Amy, you know, it's this amazing thing, but mom and dad may have said it three times already. And you thought that was like crazy what they said. right? So, um, so I'm looking forward to that, but, um, I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you have found, um, and experienced with the, with the, um, teacher environment that you've Mm -hmm. been in. I know you're, you know, that's where you're really, um, making an impact at this point in time, um, where do you see the stressors on the majority of that demographic that you're working with right now? Yeah. Um, so of, of the households or couples that I work with on an ongoing basis, 70, this is a little bit of an estimate because it fluctuates over time, but uh, about 70%, at least one member of the household, if it's a couple or the individual works either in a school or a school adjacent um, right, so a nonprofit that supports schools, or even a for-profit that works with schools, um, a social worker in a school, teachers, administrators, etc. So, sort of in and around um, professors as well, a couple of professors. Um, and so, I think you know, of course, there's like resource constraint, right? Like financial planning typically is work with people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so you're just having very different conversations because you know there's a lot more that's available. Um, most of my client households make anywhere from you know. A hundred, hundred and fifteen thousand dollars to say three hundred thousand um, dollars, which is still relative to all of America. Of course, on the high end, but substantially lower than I think the typical demographic of financial planners. Um, and so there, there are more choice trade-offs, particularly in two-teacher households, right? So then you're kind of talking towards the lower end of that range. Um, and so stressors, of course, there's the choice trade-offs, right? And, you know, at that level of income, I think it's really interesting because some people see it, you know, I have the one couple that I'm working with, two educators, and they they went from uh, being a one-income household to a two-income household. So essentially, one of them stayed home for a while when they had their first child, and now they're back to a two-income household. And they've expressed feeling like one of the, you know, you know, we make so much money, we could do anything. I just don't want to blow it. Well, mm-hmm. they make you know, low, low 100,000s, right? Um, and I just think that's such a great perspective that some people see the same amount of money as being, I could do anything, it's so much money that other people look at and go, I don't even know how to get by, I'm, I'm on credit card debt, right? So it is such a, 
such a story we tell ourselves what is enough. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think it's just fascinating to see people look at the same numbers and come to really different conclusions. Sorry, it's a little bit of a tangent to what you're saying. No, no, no. It's uh, actually right. I mean, I think it's actually right up that alley because I think that's, the, the, I mean, the things that I see within that particular profession is number one, right off the top, it's it's the student loan debt that they're coming out of college with yes. because the income to, to debt yes. ratio is stifling. You know, they, they have to have five years of education for the most part. So, you know, you, you can't generally have a four-year degree and then be working on your master's anymore. It's, it's, you pretty much have to have your master's in order to, to teach at least in the Northern part of the world. <laughs> yep. I got um, mine in New York and then left. So I never got $1 of extra pay after I got my master's in New <laughs> education um yeah i mean there's this you know loan piece which of course is a big deal and you know there are there's income based or income driven repayment which can be a wonderful tool if your budget's strapped but also then your you know your debt balance is growing over time mm-hmm. so it's helpful short run and hurtful long run yeah can, i want to dive into that for just a second more because people don't understand what you just said i don't think um, oh sure sorry no, 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 that's I a great we're recording yeah no that's that's a big piece because i think um what what you just said was it's helpful from a cash flow perspective but the debt keeps growing so, so if somebody qualifies for income-based repayments, yes, it's very helpful for cash flow. But if they want to go buy a car, if they want to go buy a house, their debt to income um, generally, I mean, the lenders are going to look at what your payment has to be, not what, mm-hmm. maybe not what your balance is per se. But if you're to do a balance sheet statement on yourself, you're going to see that debt continue to grow and your yeah. income very likely isn't going to grow at the same rate that that debt does, especially on income-based repayments. Now, if you are in the right income-based repayment plan and you submit your paperwork properly and you do it for 10 years with 100 and I shouldn't even say 10 years with 120 payments, I didn't say consecutive, but 120 payments, then you may qualify. Again, I use a a, a word Mm -hmm. that's um, for income-based um, forgiveness, right. but you have to do everything right. Mm-hmm. And well, that's where I see go wrong. <laughs> right. And you have to do everything right over a long period of time. And you basically have to commit to a path at a pretty young, early yeah. age. Oftentimes. Yeah. It's, that's the student loan question. So, you know, and then you get into things. So that's, you know, if someone's in public service, which a lot of people that I work with are, um, there's also teacher loan forgiveness, but if you do teacher loan forgiveness, those payments don't count for public service loan forgiveness. So I've seen people do that, right? So they, let's sit, let's take a hypothetical co-person starts teaching at 23 and has a bunch of student loan debt, but thinks that it'll all get forgiven by 33. So they go about it five years in, they apply for $5,000 of forgiveness via the teacher loan forgiveness program. Boom, $5,000 comes off their debt. That's great, especially because their debt's probably more than it started at on an income-based repayment or an income-driven repayment. Um, because if your interest charges is more than you're paying, it goes up every month. Mm-hmm. Well, now actually they have 10 more years. So we're not mm-hmm. talking about 33, we're talking about 38. Well, now right. we're talking about, you may have actually repaid more than the cost of the loan if you had just stomached a couple hundred extra dollars a month the whole time. Yeah. Um, and it's not always that simple, but but it's it's really a long-term, short-term trade-off that has to be made. And I think it's so confusing for mm-hmm. so many people. It is, um, yeah. Even if you had, even if you knew everything that was going to happen, 
it's it's confusing. And then you take into account the the lack the uncertainty. So I do have a couple who um, kind of were in that camp of start off making income based repayments when their debt grew and grew, but then their salaries went up, and so now they need to pay it down. But they're paying down even more than they started with. And one member of the couple kind of keeps hanging on to this, like if there's a blue wave twenty twenty, maybe we'll have you know we're just going to cancel all student debt sort of thing, which I think is highly unlikely. Um, and I, and I've told them, I think it's highly unlikely, but if you spend the next you know few years aggressively paying down your debt and you knock out $60,000 and then that happens, you are going to hate me. But I don't think it's going to happen. I'm reasonably certain that's not going to happen. Um, you know, 97% certain it's not going to happen, but we're, we're dealing with probabilities. We're not dealing with certainties. Um, and I think with student loans, there's so many variables. It's very easy to make a mistake. Um, the other piece of it that I think is hard and we can talk about the, the retirement as well as it plays out with this, which is so many of these financial institutions are only open during business hours. So a teacher to call their student loan servicer, which they're probably going to have to call three or four or five times, probably won't get the right information the first time, probably will get hung up on at some point. And you tell them to do that when on their 20 to five minute lunch break on their yeah, one hour yeah. of flexing that gets yeah. taken from them two or three days a week. Like, are you kidding? And, um, you know, financial institutions, the same thing. Like, oh, yeah, call our, call our line between 8 and 6. Well, 8 and 6 Eastern. So actually, that's like before school or after school for Central. And so especially if you have kids, like, good luck. Um, you know, and then you go to their website and download the form to withdraw your 403B. And then you send it in and they go, not that form. I took it from your website. What do you mean? That's when, it, that's when the frustration really starts. Didn't to you know that you had to call in and get the new super special secret form? Well, no. And I didn't call in because your hours are when I'm standing in front of a middle schooler. So no, I didn't I really love the ones that you call and you actually, you know, they tell you they're going to email you the form and they do email you the form and then you send the form in and they say, oh, well, we sent you the wrong form. Not that one. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Ryan, I, I do want to ask a couple of personal questions, if you don't mind, only right. because um, one of the things that I often find, um, especially when I'm doing this podcast with other financial planners, is that people think that because we're financial planners, we never, ever make any mistakes whatsoever, um, which is... The furthest from the truth. That's why we mm-hmm. judge you. That's why I always say to people, look at you know, and there's you can tell when there's some, um, some, I guess you want to say resistance or mm-hmm. um, the 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 veil is down a little bit still, you know, and there's this barrier. I'll say, look, you know, I, I'm not perfect either. I'm not going to judge anything you've done. I'm not going to judge you at all as a person. There, this is this is you know, a fresh start and going forward, we can't would have cut a should have. Um, but, but we can do something different going forward. So I always love to share or ask people to share like their biggest money mistake that they've ever made. Oh my goodness. So Amy, as you've been talking, cause I, I, I thought that's where you were going. I've jotted down, but I already wrote down four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's, let's just go to like kind of in, you know, I, I financed a trip to your, or I'm sorry, I financed a trip to Ecuador between my first and second year of teaching on a credit card. It took me months to pay off my supposedly $1,500 trip cost me $2,500. I've recalculated. So like I've used debt to finance a future need that because I couldn't afford it. Right. So I've done that. Um, I think another one, and this is more common and, and this can, we can talk about in terms of teachers is I remember when I moved to New York, 
And this guy came in, you know, it was at a school. We were starting the school basically from scratch. It was like nine adults, 80 kids. That's the whole thing. Um, and this guy comes in talking about retirement and there's a match and there's this and there's these funds and you fill out this paperwork and the paperwork sat there on my desk and it sat there on my desk and it sat there on my desk. And one day I was like, oh, this has been here for like two months. Pitch, threw it in the trash can, didn't think about it. So I went two years in New York where I could have been getting a 3% match and just didn't. Um, so I just forego, I just, I, I didn't take match money that would have vested immediately as well. Mm. Um, which I've since gone back and recalculated that that, you know, with some growth on it, probably will be somewhere in the range of eighty to a hundred thousand dollars by the time I'm at retirement age. Of course, you know, a hundred thousand dollars won't be the same then as it is now, but it's still not a you know nothing to sneeze at. Um, and it was the inertia, right? Like I was confused by the topic. The salesperson, and I do say salesperson, was confusing, <laughs> um, and frankly, wasn't good at getting me to sign up as I did sign up. Then uh, that brings me to my next mistake. So I kind of swung, right? So I went from inertia led me to not signing up. Then I moved to New Orleans and I was like, I'm not going to make the mistake again. I'm going to sign up. And as soon as I met those retirement people, I signed right up for a 2% fixed annuity when I was age 25. Oops. No idea. I just like didn't understand what I was signing. They were very nice. They greeted me with a hug and gave me candy and I'm a chocolate fiend. So <laughs> I did it. It took me years to realize, like, I, and essentially that money then got left in the, you know, in that account for five, six years, cost me thousands. Mm. Um, and I'll give you another very recent example, actually. And I think that what's interesting about this one is this is actually like post becoming a financial planner. Um, so on a even better, yeah, right. <laughs> and so uh, in 2017 was the year I started my firm. And so, you know, I didn't have nearly the income that I'd had in other years. So we were at a much, we were in a lower tax bracket than we'd been. And so a common strategy, and I obviously, I know you know this, Amy, but for, for others out there, like a common strategy is if you're in a low income year to convert some of your retirement money mm-hmm. from, from pre-tax to Roth. So do what's called a Roth conversion, right? And pay the taxes when I'm in a low bracket rather than in the future when I think, you know, if things keep going well, 2017 should be one of my lowest income years for, for decades, right? Um, didn't do it. Mm. Just, like, I had read about it. I kind of knew what a Roth conversion was. Uh, we had our baby and I had the business going and I was taking my CFP courses. And I understood conceptually. I helped a client do it that same year. And I just missed it in my own personal finances. Um, and, 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 you know... I can't really know exactly what the what the cost of that's going to be long term, and I'm trying to just sort of forgive myself and move on because being myself up doesn't do any good. But I think it was a really good reminder for me that knowledge isn't enough, and I think you know, all, all the clients I work with are smart, savvy people who could learn all of the things that I have learned, who could if they studied, pass a CFP exam like I did, um, but they specialize in other things and. Even if they went and got that knowledge, they if it's not interesting to them in the way it's interesting to me, they they could still miss it because it's not just about having knowledge. It's about actually like remembering it in the middle of life, which is crazy and can be overwhelming and confusing and knowing the right times to apply the right tools um, and overcoming the inertia of, okay, this task might be difficult or confusing and it's going to take a couple of hours. Well, if you tell someone who's very busy to do a difficult, confusing task that's going to take a couple of hours. They might not do it. But if you say, hey, come in, let's do it together. I'll jump on a video call. I'll do this with you. We can do this. Let's do it by the end of the month. What day are we going to do it? That can help them get it done. And it's not that I 
and it's smarter than any of them. It's purely mm-hmm. a matter of like, this is what I do and enjoy and I can help you get it done in the same way, you know, a personal trainer, like we all know we should eat less and move more. Like that's mm-hmm. not, that's not really knowledge at this point that we can all find on the internet. But that doesn't mean there's not a value in having a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something about being, being held accountable or somebody asking you where you struggle yes. for. Yeah. So any clients who end up listening? Yes. I have just putting out all my financial mistakes and you know what? <laughs> I'll probably make one now in the future. Right. And I've probably spent more time thinking about writing about reading about money than 99.7% of the population. I'm sure I'll make a mistake sometime in the next few years as well. Like that mm-hmm. I'd be extremely, extremely um, just ignorant to think that knowledge alone, book knowledge alone is enough to prevent these things. Well, life gets distracting. That's all. I mean, it just yeah. gets, it, it is what it is and it gets distracting. So I appreciate you sharing. Um, so just in kind of closing, I like to, to ask two um, sort of zenny questions, I guess is how I've, de- I've done um, them. One is, you know, what is, um, if, if you think about, um, success and the definition of success. What is your definition of success? Uh, are we talking personally, professionally, anything? Yeah. Anything really. Yeah. Just in general. Um, interesting. I think for me, success is, um, cutting down on looking back and feeling like a deep sense of regret, right? I think most people, if you look back four or five, six years, they, there are things they said or did or ways they spent their time or their money that they regret. Um, I don't think it's possible to get that to zero, but I think to continually be trying to work that downwards and sort of making sure that you're spending your time and your money on things that actually matter to you mm-hmm. is successful. Um, and within the context of, of knowing that more won't necessarily make it better beyond a certain point. Um, and so I think I do see, you know, I, I know it's a cliche, but I think a lot of people think that, okay, if I just attain this amount of money, I, you know, I've had that conversation with a few people over the years and, okay, I'm at X income now. If I just get this raise of $10,000, I'll be able to accomplish X, Y, Z goal. And I always just say, you won't, um, yeah. and that's harsh, but I think it's, it's not something where another, you know, a few hundred dollars in your paycheck usually will, will get you there. It's like really spending time looking at every purchase, asking that question you mentioned that your nephews had and doing the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, so I guess for me, sort of ever, ever whittling down the number of things you look back on on regret is, is a definition of success and kind of trying to get it down as much as possible. And, and then the second question I like to ask, um, and I think it's so different for every person, which is why I love to ask it, but what feeds your soul? What recharges you? Um, the city of New Orleans. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's Mardi Gras time. So maybe, maybe if you ask me that in September, I might have a very different. <laughs> no, there's just something to the people here, the warmth, the spirit of the city. We had a first parade this past weekend. I just love being out and the camaraderie and the joy costuming, all of that. Um, and now being able to do that with my family, with my son, mm-hmm. um, you know, my son is, uh, is affectionately referred to as Bam Bam by most of his extended family because his propensity to break any and everything and jump on any and everything and throw any and everything. <laughs> so on Party Grad Day, my family is going to be going out as uh, Barney, Betty, and Bam Bam from the Flintstones. Neat! Um, <laughs> just like living in a city where I can do that and it's totally okay and not only does no one judge but people love it. You know, I've run into, you know, the guy who sold me my house I ran into on Mardi Gras Days, you know, wearing like a pink wig and green leggings and we shared a drink and 
had a good laugh for 10 or 15 minutes and moved on. And, you know, I think in some cities, people would think that means you like think less of them as a professional. And I love just living in a city that realizes like our, our current conception of professionalism is pretty stupid in my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I like that my realtor can wear pink leggings and a green wig or vice versa <laughs> what it was. And he's a bad realtor. He's a great realtor who I recommend all the time. And it also means he's a fun person who I enjoy being around. And, um, you know, to sort of, I guess, bring it back to the, what feeds your soul is like, I, one of my first requirements for people I'm going to work with is like, I have to like you. I have yeah. to enjoy spending time with you. And I hope vice versa. Like if you don't want to open up to someone about your money, if you don't enjoy them. And I love that I get to talk to people about all of these important things. And it's so humbling to know that you get mm-hmm. to be a part of these conversations that, that they probably aren't sharing with anyone else or maybe very, very few other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really important to me. So I think, you know, that kind of all wraps together. I think a lot, you know, a lot of my clients are here in New Orleans and are, you know, are, are, are a part of that city spirit I talked about, but also just being able to, to be a part of their lives is really important to me and something that I don't think I understood the value of when I started this business, but now it's probably one of the foremost reasons why I enjoy mm-hmm. doing it. Well, Ryan, we want to say thank you for spending um, your afternoon, an hour of your afternoon with us anyways. And um, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And it's always interesting to, to learn how people, you know, transition their career when they, when they have that. I've never done anything other than been in this particular mm-hmm. profession. And so, um, you know, I'm, I, I've been, I've done it for half my life, more than half my life at this point in time. And so, you know, it's seeing how people transition from, um, different aspects of life into this wonderful profession that we have and their different perspective on it is always very helpful. And I hope that, you know, people listening, um, hear that. And they also hear that, you know, we, we, we work with all sorts of people that it doesn't have to be a millionaire or, you know, multimillionaire. We, we want to work with everybody that wants some advice on financial planning. And that's what changed your life was taking that step forward um, and has brought you into to what you're so good at now. So thank you so much for being part of the show. And we certainly appreciate it. I really appreciate coming on. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. And that will about do it for this week's episode of Wine and Dime. You can visit Amy on the web at irvineadvise.com or you can follow her on Twitter at Amy Irvine Advise or on her Facebook page, Irvine Wealth Planning Strategies. If you have any questions, comments, or topics that you would like to hear about, feel free to contact us through Twitter or Facebook and we will do our best to answer your questions. We would love to hear from you. And thank you for listening.